So we're going to look back in uh, 2 Corinthians, um, starting at verse 12. Um, although we'll concentrate probably a little bit more on the, the second half of the passage that we looked at there. It was, I think, six months ago or more that we, um, in fact, maybe nine months ago, that we were <clears throat> we looked at the first part of this uh, chapter. But I, since the opportunity came to, or I was asked to preach again this evening, I thought it would be appropriate to pick up where we left off. So that's why we're here uh, in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 12. No better reason. If you've had even half an ear to the news in recent weeks, unless you're from a foreign country, you will be aware that being accused of lying can have very serious consequences. Accusations abound. Newspapers have a field day. Careers are cut short and reputations are ruined. Now, nothing I say in the next few minutes should be taken as any comment on the conduct of uh, a former prime minister, let me say that. But having said that, it's interesting that whilst the circumstances are very different, Paul faced similar accusations of lying from some in the church in Corinth. And indeed, these accusations form the background to this passage that we're looking at this evening. You may recall that Paul had planted the church in Corinth. He spent about 18 months there before continuing his missionary endeavours, moving on to Ephesus. But the church in Corinth had its difficulties. And that required Paul to write some stern letters to them. The letter that we call 1 Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians, is one of them. Although, confusingly, probably the second. But along with this pastoral concern for problems in the church in Corinth, Paul also faced opposition from some prominent individuals there who claimed to be true apostles. And they presented themselves as skilled orators, as strong leaders. And they claimed to be the people worthy of respect, of leadership in the church. But in asserting their own prominence, they demeaned Paul. They accused him of being weak, of being unassuming of being unreliable. Not only that, but it seems that their character assassination included the accusation that Paul had lied about his intentions to visit Corinth. And so he couldn't be trusted. Verses 15 and 16 of, uh, of this passage explain the background to the accusation. Paul, it seems, had been travelling to Macedonia and had signalled his intention to call in on the church in Corinth, both on the journey there and also on the journey back. And that's why he refers to uh, giving them a second experience of grace. Now, no matter how sincere 
his uh, intentions had been, circumstances had changed. Reading on, it, it appears as if Paul's change of plans was somehow rather connected to the pastoral difficulties which Paul had been grappling with in Corinth, although we don't know, uh, in all fairness, all the details of that. Whatever the reason, though, Paul's opponents appear to have seized on this change of plan and spun it to denigrate Paul. And if we read on into verse 17, you can almost hear um, Paul uh, dealing with their accusations. Oh, you can't rely on Paul, you know. He vacillates between one idea and another. He's always changing his mind. Or maybe they even presented a worse case. You know, you can't trust a word that that Paul says. He says yes and no at the same time, telling different people different things. He completely lacks integrity. You never know what the truth is with him. This then is what provokes Paul's response that starts in verse 12, the first verse of the passage we read this evening. Paul says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Now, the word simplicity here doesn't mean that Paul was a simpleton. He wasn't keeping things simple in that sense. Rather, it means that Paul was single-minded. He wasn't duplicitous or scheming. In other words, he's saying that he is without guile or deceit. Paul's appeal is that he acted with sincerity towards the church in Corinth. He hadn't been deceitful at all, but he'd acted with utmost integrity in his dealings with them. Now, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus tells those who follow him not to resist the evil one, but he tells us to turn the other cheek if we're accused. But here in these verses, Paul pushes back on the accusations that have been made about him. And the reason he does so is that there's something far more important than his personal rec reputation at stake. I suspect, if it was just that, that he would have walked away. But, the, but there is and was something far more important to consider. If you see, Paul was an apostle. He was teaching in the church. And if Paul could not be trusted, you couldn't trust what he taught either. If Paul is accused of being a liar, then the truth of the gospel which he preached would be undermined. The word of life, the only hope of salvation which he proclaimed, well, that would be a lie as well. So Paul has to defend his reputation. And he appeals to God as his witness in verse 18, doesn't he? He declares, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. No, says Paul. God himself is my witness that I haven't been double-minded and I haven't been duplicitous. 
And it's a really serious statement he makes, isn't it? He says, he makes an oath before God. He says, before God, this is true. I haven't said yes and no to you at the same time so that you don't know what to believe. Rather, he explains that his teaching can be trusted, but not on the grounds of his own virtue. The reason his teaching can be trusted, he says, is because of the subject of his teaching. You see what he says in verse 19? For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Now that's a a slightly convoluted sentence, perhaps if you read it for the first time, but you can put some brackets around some words in the middle there. Put a bracket beginning at whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, and then a close bracket after that, because he's looking back to when he and Silvanus and Timothy went to Corinth to preach the gospel. And so if you put brackets around that bit, which is setting the scene, we see what he says, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. In the face of these accusations, then, Paul says, you can trust what he taught because he has proclaimed Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is true and totally trustworthy. The theologian Charles Hodge sums it up well in eight words. Paul, he says, Paul says, my preaching is true, for Christ is true. Well, this is the background to this section of scripture. In making this defense against his accusers, Paul calls on three things to support his assertion to the Corinthians that the Lord Jesus is true. And we'll reflect on those three things briefly now. First thing is, he shows that Christ is shown, or he states that Christ is shown to be true through the Corinthians' own experience of salvation. And we find that in verse 19. Paul makes the point, he highlights in verse 19, Jesus Christ was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. So Paul takes his readers back to the time, doesn't he, when Timothy and Silvanus had first come preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. And we're told in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians believed at that time. They were baptized when they heard the gospel which Paul preached. You see, they'd found in their own experience that Jesus was true. They were able to testify themselves that Jesus wasn't yes and no, but he was always yes. Through their own experience then, they found that Jesus was indeed the way, the truth, and the life. And having found the Lord Jesus to be true through putting their faith in him, 
How how much more wonderful did the truth about the Lord Jesus become to them? In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 130, Paul also looks back to their conversion, to them coming to faith in response to his preaching. And there in 1 Corinthians 130, Paul tells the Corinthians, because of him, that's the Lord Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, having discovered that Jesus is, yes, Jesus is true, how much deeper did their appreciation of him become? Paul reminds them that the Lord Jesus became to them wisdom from God. How could a holy and a just God both punish sin and yet show mercy to his people? How do righteousness and peace kiss each other as we're told in Psalm 85? Well, here the Lord Jesus is the perfect solution to this divine conundrum, isn't he? God's wisdom is demonstrated through his only son, the one graciously given out of love, so that we should not perish but have eternal life. Paul Paul also describes the Lord Jesus in this verse as becoming the righteousness and sanctification and redemption of the Corinthians once they had found that he was true. You see, having discovered Jesus is always yes, that Jesus is true, every aspect of their new life was bound up in him. And the same is true for us, isn't it? If we're a Christian today, just as for the Corinthians, the Lord Jesus becomes our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Paul goes on to declare in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that in Christ, his righteousness becomes ours so that we can no longer be accused as sinners before God. Paul tells us again in Romans 6 that in Christ we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live more Christ-like lives. Having discovered then that Jesus is yes, that is true, both we and the Corinthians enjoy these benefits of salvation. We know the joy and the peace that come from knowing that we're no longer under condemnation. We know the encouragement and grace that the Lord provides to resist sin. And we can testify from our own experience, just as the Corinthians could testify from their experience, that Jesus Christ is not yes and no, but is always yes. There's nothing duplicitous in Christ, for he is true. Well, Paul goes on. He shows that Christ is true through our own experience, but he goes on to show that Christ is true because he fulfills God's promises. Look at verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. You know, for me, one of the most persuasive arguments 
that the Bible is true and inspired and written by God is the way in which promises are fulfilled. The Bible was written over hundreds of years through the instruments of different men. And yet, there is a wonderful consistency, isn't there, about the message that we find within its pages. The whole book hangs together in a way which would be simply impossible if it had been written other than through the inspiration of God himself. So we're told in verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in him. How many promises of God are there in the Bible? Google didn't want to give me a definitive answer to that. But this verse tells us something quite remarkable. For we're told that all the promises of God find their yes in the Lord Jesus. Now, there's some obvious examples, aren't there? Maybe you can think of some. Perhaps you think of Genesis 3.15, the... Uh, just after the fall, uh, and uh, God declares and promises that the offspring of Eve will bruise the head of the serpent and that the serpent will bruise his heel. This looks forward to the cross, doesn't it? When the Lord Jesus Christ conquers sin and death. Or perhaps you'd think of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, Abraham is told that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Galatians 3.16 tells us that it is Christ who is the seed. The seed of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, people from every nation experiencing the blessing of salvation in Christ. Or perhaps you'd think of 2 Samuel 7:16, God entering into a covenant with David, King David, and assuring him that his throne will be established forever. And this looks to the Lord Jesus Christ as in his office as king of the church, who will reign over all things for all eternity. Some might be a little less obvious. We've just sung Psalm 40. There in verse 5, what does it say? The wonders you have done, O Lord, how many and how great they are. Your plans for us are far beyond our number to, de number, to number or declare. What were those plans which the psalmist anticipated well, those wonderful plans which are beyond our power to declare or number are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ with his great plan of salvation. Well, all these promises give great encouragement, don't they, to us when we see them fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't this give both the Corinthian church to which Paul was writing and us? an assurance of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not all the promises of God 
are there to encourage us. If you're here this morning, and I know most of you were, we were looking at a passage in Joshua. Now, I would be um, cheeky if I was to ask you a question about this morning's sermon in Joshua, uh, but it would be even more cheeky of me to ask you a question about a sermon in Joshua that we had 18 months ago. For there, then, 18 months ago, we were looking at Joshua chapter 8. And we saw there a great gathering that took place of the children of Israel. You might remember that they'd had their initial military successes. Jericho had fallen, and then after a slight um, delay and hiccup, the, the city of Ai had fallen. And then in obedience to the instruction that had been given to them, the children of Israel uh, gathered together half in front of Mount Ebal and half in front of Mount Gerizim. And if you were with us 18 months ago, I wonder if you can remember what happened in front of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Everybody was there. A great hush fell. And we find that the promises of God were read out. The promises of blessings were read out from Mount Gerizim. But also, 12 promises of curses were read out from Mount Ebal. I wonder how you would have felt if you were standing there listening to those curses being declared. How would you have had a, a slight sense of apprehension when the last of those curses was read and all you could hear was the wind? For this is what it said. Cursed is the one who does not conform to all the words of this law by observing them. If you were standing there in front of Mount Ebal, wouldn't you have been left despairing what to do? How could you possibly avoid the consequences of this curse? Cursed is the one who does not conform to all. That's every single one of the words of this law. But friends, move on hundreds of years to another hill. And what do we find? find that the promises of God find their yes in the Lord Jesus. For it's not just the promises of blessing that find their yes in him. For there on the cross we find the promised curses being poured out on him as well. All the promised curses which should have been poured out on us, they find their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ finding their yes, so that God's love, in God's love, we might be reconciled to him in his mercy and his grace. So thank God then that all the promises of God find their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul shows us then or tells us that Christ is shown to be true through our own experience or the experience of the Corinthians that he's shown to be true because he fulfills all God's promises. 
But then he goes on to show that Christ is true because of the guarantee that he has given us. Look at verse 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When we visited um, our daughter Fionn in Seoul earlier in the year, one of the things she took us to was an area of the city which had a history of making stamps not postage stamps to put on a letter, but small blocks which were used to make an impression when pressed onto paper. And it seems that even today, certain legal documents in Korea are not valid unless an individual puts his stamp and it's imprinted on it. And therefore, there's a whole industry uh, which comprises of the design and the manufacture of these little uh, stamps for individuals. So when we visited Seoul, we spent a morning designing and making stamps, which were intended to convey something of the name or personality of each of us. The design was supposed to reflect who we were. Well, Paul tells us that, he, that when we become Christians, in a similar way to the stamps used in Korea on certain legal documents, God puts a seal on us. This seal may not be visible to the human eye, for it's a spiritual seal. But like the stamps we made in Korea, this seal is distinctive because it bears the mark of the one who has granted it. The seal has a divine mark, for this is the Holy Spirit, the one in whom, with whom, the believer is anointed. So you see, the seal marks us out as belonging to God. It demonstrates that the Lord Jesus has indeed done a good work in our lives like the seals in Korea, which proved that a legal document is genuine, God's seal is the mark that we are the genuine article, if you like, and not just someone going through the motions of religion. And then finally, God's seal preserves and protects us, showing that our Heavenly Father watches over us, keeping us until that day when we are presented spotless before him. And that last thought is amplified further by Paul, isn't it, in verse 22, because we're told that God has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, the original idea there, the concept of a guarantee, has links with commerce. A guarantee was a pledge given as, as surety. In other words, it was a down payment. It was to assure the parties that a transaction would be completed. So the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of our salvation is assured through a pledge from God himself. It's a guarantee 
that he will complete the good work that he has started in us. The Spirit works in our heart. We put our faith in Christ. And it's a guarantee that he will keep us until that day. This is the indwelling Holy Spirit who works in us for our sanctification and our good while we live our lives here on earth. So the seal that's been put on us marks us as Christ. And the seal isn't visible to the naked eye. But that doesn't mean that you can't know that it's there. Because the Spirit's presence will be seen in its fruit. It'll be seen in the faith that God gives you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be seen in the marks of grace that we see in our lives as we have a growing aversion and repugnance of sin. It'll be seen in a growth of love for the Lord Jesus Christ over time and a growing affection for his people. So you see, Paul gives us a third reason to be sure that the Lord Jesus is yes and that he is true. Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is true because of the guarantee that is given to us, the guarantee that shows that Jesus is yes. What do we say in conclusion to all this? We need to remember that uh, Paul's great concern was that the personal accusations he was facing shouldn't detract from the truth about Jesus. So then we need to think about him. If we're trusting in Christ, then let's rejoice this evening that Jesus is not yes and no, that there's no uncertainty about him, but that he is always yes, that he is true. Give praise to God that his promises to his people all find their yes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank God that, he, that Jesus has put his seal on us and placed a guarantee of our eternal hope in our hearts. But friends, if you don't yet know Jesus, if you don't know this truth, then come to Jesus and find the wonder of the one in whom there is no confusion or duplicity. Come to the one who is always true, the one who is always yes for his people. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a sure hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we uh, look back over scripture, we see that he is the one uh, who was promised even from the opening pages of Genesis. And time and time again, O oh Lord, we, we see how the Lord Jesus Christ himself fulfilled all the promises uh, that were made to your people. We thank you that Jesus Christ is indeed not yes and no, that there is no confusion of Him in him, but rather that he is yes, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Help us, Lord, all to put our trust and our faith in him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.